Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. All right, welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. It's a, I'm very excited today to interview a guy that I uh, have been learning from recently, but just read his book called Masculine Christianity. I'm talking to Zach Garris today. Zach, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, why don't we go and pray, and then we got a lot of good stuff to talk about. So let's, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help and uh, trust that he'll give it. Father, we just thank you for this time. I just ask for your leadership here. Holy Spirit, guide us. Help us as we're talking about what it means to be created in the image of God, uh, what it means to be engendered, made as male and female, and specifically talking about masculine Christianity and I just thank you for all the work that Zach has done uh, in this field and in this uh, particular work. It's just been so helpful. And so lead this time. I trust you will. Thank you for what you're doing in his life. And uh, thank you for this conversation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Zach, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. For those who may not know who you are, tell us about yourself and your family and then what it is that you do. Sure. So I'm a practicing attorney in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I'm originally from this area. I have a wife and a five-week-old son. And I'm also licensed to preach in the PCA. And so I preach and teach in a couple of nearby churches. I also run a couple of websites, uh, one on education and the other one on uh, Bible, teaching okay. the Bible. So. Fantastic. So what's, what's those sites? Say uh, people like the interview and want to find that out. I'll put these in the show notes as well, but what, where do you do your work? Yeah. So knowingscripture.com is where I write about scripture and theology along with uh, one of my friends, Daniel Hoffman. And then I have a resource website for uh, Christian education, especially for homeschoolers, uh, but also Christian schools, things like that. That's teachdiligently.com. Fantastic. We homeschool. So that's going to be great to look at. So when I was young, Michigan was, had the Fab Five. And so I was a huge Chris Weber, huge Jalen Rose. It was Chris Weber, Jalen Rose, uh, Jawan Howard, oh man, uh, Jimmy King, and Ray. Oh man, I'm going to forget his last name. But I loved Michigan, the state of Michigan, and Michigan football, basketball, everything. And so you, I mean, we're somewhat of the same age, but do you remember that team? I think it was 1994 or five. Do you remember that team at all? So I, w- I was pretty young when the Fab Five was around. Uh, it's 1992 and three, I believe. Okay. So around there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I grew up a huge Michigan fan. So Very I, cool. uh, you know, Fab Five is obviously legendary. That's yeah, that's awesome. And then Michigan football, um, who was it? He ended up playing for, the Green Bay Packers, and he won the Heisman, I think. And it wasn't the defender. He was a – what was his name? He Charles a, Woodson? No, it wasn't Charles Woodson. It was, was it before, Charles? it was before Charles Woodson, and uh, which he just retired, you know, like two years ago, which is amazing. <laughs> um, no, he, he won – it was like uh, in the early 90s as well. It was right around that same time as the Fab Five. It, it'll dawn on me as soon as we get done with this interview. Uh, but I love Michigan football as well and uh, love the baggy shorts and all that. But, uh, okay, so who's going to win? Is, uh, did, did Michigan really have voter fraud? I mean, you're a lawyer. You know what's going on. Who won Michigan? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I think there was certainly some voter fraud 
I'm not sure whether it was enough to swing the election or not. Uh, so, you know, most people are saying it has to be proved in the courts. Uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. I think they just need to convince uh, Mike Pence and uh, the state legislatures that there was fraud. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not as complicated as having to go through the courts. But yeah, I, I'd like to think Trump won, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard to say. It's going to be interesting. I, I watched the press conference yesterday, and this will timestamp this episode a little bit, but the press conference came out where Rudy Giuliani, it was the press conference where he had the hair dye that was coming down the side of his face. My wife and I felt so bad for him. Like I think Just for Men was trending on, on Twitter for a while and uh, just felt so bad for him. But but man, the interview in the press conference, it was really convincing. I mean, they had some really good, I mean, there's clearly circumstantial evidence about the night after the election and how these, these different states seemed that there was, you know, uh, some sort of voter fraud going on just circumstantially. But then with they've got all these signed affidavits, it's just very interesting to see how this is going to play out. But uh, we got a bunch of QAnon po folks all over the country really hoping that, that, uh, <laughs> that this really plays out to where Trump wins and everybody goes down. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting for sure. So, okay. Um, well, why don't you uh, kind of tell us the beginning stages? When did you become a Christian? And now you went to seminary and then you did go to law school. So we're going to get to that here in a minute. But why don't you just tell us when you became a Christian and just what that story was about, about you coming to the faith. So I actually grew up attending a Greek Orthodox church with my grandparents. But when I was around age 13, I had a friend from high school and he ended up giving me a Bible, and I started reading that really for the first time. Uh, I was reading through the New Testament, and I was just amazed by the words of Christ. Mm. And so at some point there, I was converted, understood the gospel, and I started going to a Free Methodist Church with my friend. So that's how I was converted. And so the Free Methodist, is that, you know, the Methodist denomination, I think we have some Free Methodists here. Basically, they're just an independent Methodist Baptist, or kind of like an independent Baptist church. The Free Methodists are just independent churches. Is that kind of how it is? Yeah, I don't recall too much about their history, but I know they're, you know, more, at least used to be more conservative than the United Methodist Church. Okay, gotcha. So you went to, yeah, you were converted into Methodist <laughs> Church. Uh, but then somehow you end up going to RTS. So what was that story from being converted as a Methodist growing up Eastern Orthodox and then ended up at a Presbyterian college? So how did that happen? Yeah, so in college, I was bouncing around churches. I was involved with, you know, campus ministry there, but I didn't really have a church home. You know, I tried going to a Lutheran church and then some others. And I eventually ended up attending a Reformed Church, Dutch Reform, Reformed Church in America. Mm -hmm. And it was a conservative church in uh, East Lansing. And so that, that's basically how I became Reformed, though I, I was reading things on Calvinism, uh, books and the like. And then I decided to go to Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And it was while I was in Mississippi that I essentially became Presbyterian because you don't have any Dutch Reformed churches. And uh, the RCA turned out to not be a great long-term option for me. So Yeah, gotcha. Isn't the RCA, I think uh, Robert Mueller, or what was his name, with the Crystal Cathedral out in, yeah. it was like Kevin DeYoung and him in the same denomination. <laughs> it was kind of, a, but uh, anyways, the Crystal Cathedral. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, but wasn't, so were you at Kevin DeYoung's church? Is that where you were? That's right. That's okay. right. Yeah. Fantastic. And 
Okay, good deal. Very cool. So now you're a lawyer now. So at some point you were in seminary and pursuing that. Now, I don't know if you're an elder now, or are you on, on the session at your church? But at some point after seminary, you end up going back to law school. So what, what's, what's the deal with that? Yeah, I'm not an elder right now. I, uh, just like I said, licensed uh, to preach okay. in, our, in our presbytery. But yeah, so actually after seminary, I taught at a Christian school for a couple of years down in Mississippi. It ended up closing for financial reasons. And so I had to make a decision there. You know, what was I going to do after this? You know, did Christian education, you know, pay enough to raise a family? That was kind of a issue I was wrestling with. And then I ended up back in Michigan and was working at my family's law firm. And so I decided to go to law school for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it would enable me to work bivocationally, uh, but also it gave me something to fall back on, even if I did end up, you know, as a full-time pastor. So just kind of look into the future. Okay. You're now a lawyer and uh, it seems like, man, God's doing a, a great work in your life because you're continuing to study, continue to write, doing a lot of work, a lot of irons in the fire, but you wrote this book, Masculine, or Masculine Christianity. And I heard about this from Eric Kahn. Now, by the time our interview is out, I think you're going to be on his podcast as well sometime soon, but this will come out here in a couple months. But uh, so everybody should go listen to the interview that you're on with uh, Eric at the Hard Men podcast. But he's the guy that I heard about your book from. So he's like, dude, you got to get this. It's very good. So I get it. And in the same reaction he had, which was just, I'm amazed. I can't believe this book. Um, I opened the book up and, you know, self-published. So I'm thinking, you know, all right, you know, it's, <laughs> we'll see what this book's about. And I read it and I'm blown away. I mean, just the footnotes alone are remarkable. You can tell really quickly that you know your stuff. In the very beginning, you, you kind of just lay out your credentials, which are humble and yet clear. It's, it's clear what your goal and objective is. It's just a phenomenal book. And you start off doing a little deconstructing about the rise of feminism and really some of the issues of complementarianism. But I just got to hear what led you to write this book and how long did it take? What was your frustrations with maybe complementarianism or egalitarianism and feminism? What led you to the point of, I just got to put the pen to paper or put my fingers to the keyboard and write this book and make it happen. What, what got you to that point? Yeah, there's a lot there. So the book actually didn't take me that long. I started about a year ago, maybe uh, October of 2019. But I had a lot of the research and thoughts in my head already. Uh, so I, you know, I guess it was years in the making. Mm -hmm. But the reason I decided to write this book is that I got frustrated with the Christian literature on the subject. I've gotten frustrated with, I think, the practice in even supposedly conservative churches. Uh, I think feminism is, you know, wildly successful not only in society, but also in the church. And I was starting to research more and getting the sense that complementarianism had some deficiencies and even differed from some of the traditional Christian positions on, on some of these issues. And so I started researching more and writing and uh, that's kind of how this book was, was formed. So it was phenomenal. And I'm so thankful for the work and really, I think in this field of biblical patriarchy or just an unapologetic look at specific passages about what God says to men and women, 
both his commissioning and, and prohibitions that are given to both the male and the female and uh, the use of natural law. There's a whole wide open field, I think, of, of just saying, hey, here, here's what the text says, both at a lay and a scholarly level for people to just to get to work. I mean, you've done such a fantastic job. And my brain was spinning as I was reading this because, man, I was steeped in complementarianism for 12 years and read Andreas Kostenberger's God, Marriage, and Family, uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Recovering the Role with Grudeman, which is the you know landmark work that they had written. Uh, so you mentioned deficiencies in complementarianism. And some of the deficiencies that I've seen is just simple, not yet capitulating to the culture, but at least embarrassed by specific passages. Most of the complementarians I know, even those who would say that they're strong complementarians, are really terrified of passages specifically that talk to women. That's where the rubber meets the road. They're terrified of women. What were those deficiencies in complementarianism that, you, that led you to think, okay, l- listen, I've got to do something here. There's some error here that needs to be corrected. Um, and I'm the man to do it. Yeah. Uh, the first thing you were talking about there makes me think of a passage like Titus two verses four and five about older women training the younger women yeah. you know, to love their husbands and, and work at home. I mm-hmm. mean, how often do you hear that passage referenced by complementarians? So I think that kind of tells you a little bit of, you know, what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And real quick, I think that that's a, a specific issue. Well, I'm a part of a denomination and a network that both claim to be complementarian. So now the Arbor Network, it's not Sojourn Network anymore. Um, and uh, I don't think we'll be a part of the network very much longer. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention, the same sort of way where complementarianism to them is uh, it's you never talk about specific texts. You only say, where's the, how far, how close can we get to the line um, of what God has prohibited and what can an unordained man do? Let's just let all the women do that exact thing, same thing, but never is the glory of the home given specifically to women. So we'll talk about the commissions and prohibitions to men all the time, whatever those may be, we'll go there, but we're terrified of the women and I don't get it. I think it's tied into feminism. So once you give an overview, you, you, at the beginning of the book, talk about feminism here and, and lay out the issue of that. But once you deconstruct a little bit, or at least um, lay out what you talked about of, of why is feminism and the erosion of masculinity, why is that tied together? Well, I think, you know, feminism has been very successful in the United States, uh, including its first wave in the 19th century. And I should say here, I think that's somewhere where a lot of conservatives or complementarians are unwilling to go. Uh, they're unwilling to criticize that time period or even understand, as, as I argue in the first chapter there, that first wave feminism is connected to second wave feminism. Actually laid, laid the groundwork. It was more of an individualistic approach uh, rather than looking at the family as a whole and the husband as the head of the, the family. And uh, yeah, so that's just been a part of our society for a long time and it's, you know, made its way in the church. And, and today, you know, feminism, uh, it's, it's so popular and common in the church where women are seeking careers rather than family life, right? Rather than seeking to have children and stay at home. And churches aren't really dealing with this. And so it's, it's a massive problem. And uh, there's passages that speak to these things, uh, but they don't preach them. And so, you know, I wrote that first chapter, I think, to give some history and to help people understand 
you know, how we got where we are now. Felt that foundation from the beginning of saying hey, it's all interconnected and even moving from family units to individuals being a, a makeup of individuals from a society or a country of groups of people rather than uh, and then moving towards this individual idea um i, I thought that was a phenomenal way uh talk through the issues and say hey th this is all connected here and i think so you know I, I said in one of my sermons a while back and actually i think i posted this on, on the internet as well and there's a few people that didn't like it, but our church is just so, our church loves this kind of stuff. But I'd said, how is it that we got in America to where we're offended that a woman would choose to be barefoot and in the kitchen? I, I spoke I spoke very intentionally, chose to be barefoot and in the kitchen, but we're, we're more offended at that than a woman bleeding out on the battlefield. So we, we honor the men and women who bleed out on the battlefield and we're offended by a woman who would be doing the work that God had called her to do. And somehow that's upside down. And I think that you're exactly right. I think feminism is everywhere, places that we don't see. It comes up. It's just, it's the presuppositional default of society and of evangelical churches. And I think it's the presuppositional default of complementarians as well. A majority of complementarians anyways. You go there and you just say, hey, Christianity is patriarchal. We don't need to be embarrassed about this. Uh, if the, if it, so goes the men, so goes the home, so goes the city, so goes the state, so goes the world, basically. Uh, and if we don't recognize the father rule and how God has designed things to work. So why is this word patriarchy that's been hijacked by, you know, shaved head, shaved headed women in on the left uh, raging against the patriarchy? Um, why, why are we terrified of the word patriarchy and why should we talk about it? I mean, you write about it here. Why should we be ashamed about it? Why, like, why are people nervous about the patriarchy? Yeah. <laughs> There's no reason to be nervous about it or fear it. It simply means father rule. Uh, that should be a positive thing, right? Fathers are a good thing. You want a father who leads and cares for the family. But, you know, somehow in our society, that's become this awful thing. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of history behind that with, you know, the feminist movement and egalitarianism is kind of the broader term. Uh, there's different forms of egalitarianism, feminism being one of them. Uh, the idea that you know, it's tearing down hierarchy, uh, uh, authority structures. And so I, I think that's really what gets to the root here is that people are uncomfortable with the concept of authority and of mm -hmm. hierarchy. And it's not just, you know, male headship, but that's that's a big target. And so, you know, yeah, we now live in this society where it's okay for the women to act like men, but you know, if the men just try to act like men, that's called toxic masculinity. I mean, that's, right. that's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, some of the, so in first Corinthians, one of the things I've noticed is there's so much gender confusion in first Corinthians and a part of Paul's answer through the inspiration of the Holy spirit is what nature itself teaches. So first Corinthians 11, you get into this a little bit and uh, Romans one, um, some of the, some natural law pieces that you put in this book, I thought were so wonderful because I think this is the, the big swath of complementarians. What they miss um, is speaking to natural. That's what John Piper misses. It's what in large part uh, Wayne Grudem misses at, Sometimes they get it, sometimes they see it, but a lot of the practical implications about what that actually means, they seem to miss. And this, you filled in the gaps. You, you said, okay, here's what natural law, here's how it works. Why, so talk to us about natural law. And for the pastors listening out there who don't necessarily have a, they've got texts they know of. They know First Timothy chapter two. 
Uh, they know that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Uh, they know that there's some sort of silence required in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, you did a great job on that uh, exegesis as well. But why is it important for men to be men and women to be women and for us to just see how God has made things to be and use common sense and see that common sense is generally, I mean, it's, it's theological that a man is to look manly and a woman is to look womanly and, and feminine. So what role does natural law play in the discussion about gender and masculine Christianity? I think natural law is making somewhat of a comeback today within the church. Uh, but I especially root my understanding of natural law in creation. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I have, you know, I have two chapters devoted to the creation order. Yeah. And I examined some other passages, like you mentioned, Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul appeals to nature. Mm -hmm. And so I think we do need to look at the creation texts, you know, Genesis 2 especially, and that helps us understand the specifics of God's design for men and women, you know, that you know, Adam was put in the garden to work and keep it. And I talk about that. Uh, in my book, of course, and that, that Eve was given as a helper to Adam. But even when you look at their very names, right, Adam uh, is from the, the word ground in Hebrew, Adama, and then uh, Eve's name uh, referring to a life-giving being. And so that's that's part of their roles in life is wrapped up with their very nature and their name. Uh, but, but I don't limit myself to those texts. I also make arguments, and I think we should make arguments, just looking at the way things are in the world. And I think that's what you're getting at, is men are stronger, more aggressive. You know, they have different personalities. There's obviously even research coming out on a lot of these things. And, and that, that is tied with, you know, gender roles and God has designed men and women differently. He's given them different roles, or I like to even call that duties. He's given them different duties in life. And it's all rooted in creation. And so we can look at the natural world and this stuff, it lines up. Yeah, absolutely. When we think about specifically what's going on with the church and a call back to masculine Christianity, by the title alone, it seems like you're saying that Christianity needs to return to masculine Christianity because it has been feminized in a large part. So what does that masculine Christianity, you know, you're talking to pastors here, what's that look like? Let's on the, not just the macro level, but on the micro level in a local church, what does healthy masculine Christianity look like in a local church? Yeah. One thing it, it doesn't look like it, it doesn't mean that there's no feminine component to Christianity. It's just the idea that That's the good. leadership of the church should be men and manly men at that. So not, not effeminate men, but men who are actually carrying out uh, their duty to lead and shepherd uh, God's flock. And what is the general countenance of a woman and the women of a church in a church like that, where the men are not just given a title of elder, but they're actually those men that you're describing and the marriages that you're describing. What, 
what's the flourishing woman look like in that congregation? Is it healthy, vibrant, or does it look like, you know, Eeyore, depressed, sad, uh, you know, never, you know, doing or learning anything or what, what is that? What do the ladies look like in that church? Yeah, I think women obviously have a very important role in the church. They're essential. And it's just that they have a different role than the men. So I think, you know, tied with Genesis 2, women should be helpers to their husbands. They should be uh, supporting them, uh, bearing children for them. You know, I think their work should be primarily homeward. And as I mentioned there, that doesn't mean they can't earn any income or help contribute to that, uh, but that, you know, they need to have children and children need to be nursed and cared for. And so somebody has to do that work. And I think, you know, that's clearly what's being lost with feminism is that women are going to trying to do the same things as the men mm -hmm. and then nobody's having kids anymore. Yeah, seriously. That's very good. I love how you connected Proverbs 31 as well and recognized that in Proverbs 31, it's interesting that she recognizes from, out of the overflow of the work of her home that it's going to be profitable, but she doesn't immediately start an Etsy account. She sits on it, waits, and doesn't actually sell until her family's taken care of for the winter. Even the field that she buys isn't for her business, it's for her home. And she buys the field for her home, and out of the overflow of that, when, when it's the right time, she makes money and she turns a profit on what she's doing from the home. And I loved how you, how you broke down Proverbs. So you did a good job of that as well. I think uh, by and large, this book is very, very needed work. Um, you know, you, you've got, again, you've got pastors listening in here. What's your appeal to them? Like what, what's your goal with this book? What would you like to see happen with this book? Would you like pastors to read it and hand it off to their people in their church, their elder teams? Um, what's your hope? If you get your wildest hopes that God just, you know, blesses your prayers and, the work continues to move forward and, and do just things you, you, you only hoped for, prayed for. What are you praying for with the effect of this, of this work? Well, ultimately, I hope this book, you know, helps strengthen the church. And I hope it does that in a couple ways. I would love pastors to read it. And I think, you know, it definitely gets into the text of scripture. And so it's not always an easy read. You're going to have to think when you are reading through it, especially the chapters on, you know, first Timothy two and first Corinthians 14. But I, I hope it does a couple things. I hope it gives them ammunition to deal with the, the feminist literature. There's a lot of feminist egalitarian arguments, you know, in the commentaries, there's books coming out, you know, even within the last couple of years, you know, I give the example, you know, PNR Presbyterian reform, they published this book beyond authority and submission. And it just blows my mind that, you know, PNR like supposed to be this conservative Orthodox reform publisher and they're publishing works that undermine scripture's teaching. And so I hope to give pastors and just even regular Christians uh, ammo against these arguments. Uh, but I also hope that the book encourages men and women to fulfill their manly and womanly duties in life. You know, that, that men can be better husbands and uh, wives can be uh, better wives uh, to, and, and, and have children and, and raise them well. And so uh, that's, that's my hope for the book. Good deal. Well, 
with somebody who's been in this recently, like yourself, what are some of the best books that you would recommend for lay people? Because I, I read this book and I thought, hmm, I, I love it. My pastor buddies would love this. I've recommended it to so many people already and they've told me they got the book. Um, I'm trying to do my work for you of, of getting the word out there just because it's so, so helpful. Um, what are some lay level works that you would encourage people or authors that you would encourage people, both men and women to read from that are currently writing uh, today, or maybe some works that have been helpful for you that are older? I mean, this is a tough question. I mean, I, I part wrote this book because there's not a lot of uh, books saying these things. I do think there's a couple, you mentioned one, Rebecca Merkel's Eve in Exile. My wife actually loved that book. So I would definitely recommend that. Uh, it's particularly targeted towards women. Uh, but, you know, I would also recommend Doug Wilson's works. He has a lot of shorter, you know, very practical books on uh, manhood and uh, the family. I think specifically of his father hunger mm -hmm. uh, is, a, is a great work. Wasn't uh, that also, good? Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, he's, man, his stuff's good. And actually, I just was uh, talking with him a couple of months ago, and they're coming out with Future Women. You know, he wrote Future Men. And so the, the girls, so his uh, wife and his two daughters are going to be coming out with future women. So that's going to be a complimentary book to future men, which was another dynamite book by Doug Wilson. But uh, I don't know if I've ever read a book by him <laughs> that wasn't dynamite. But <laughs> so this has been a lot of fun uh, for anybody else that's uh, saying, you know, hey, what was that again? Tell us again where we can go to find your stuff. You said uh, the websites were knowingscripture.com. And what was the second one? It's teachdiligently.com. Okay. Well, to wrap this up, I ask everybody last same, or the exact same question for the last uh, uh, question of the interview, and it's just to set you up to talk about why you love Jesus so much. So, Zach Garris, why do you love Jesus? I think I love Jesus because he's the ultimate man, the God-man, who has conquered sin and death and the devil, and in doing so, he's redeemed me from my sin, and he gives me hope, not only for this life, but also for the life to come. Amen. That's good. That's really good. He's pretty great, isn't he? He's, he's pretty great. <laughs> he is. Oh, man. All right. Well, we've been talking to Zach Garris. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. And Zach, thanks, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.